Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I'm Graham Davis, the digital editor of the Investors Chronicle. Um, this week's magazine and this podcast is dominated by the theme of income investing. It's our annual income major special issue in which we reveal the top income paying stocks on the FTSE 100. Um, with me today is Alex Janiant, who wrote the introduction to our cover feature. Welcome, Alex. Hello, Graham. And Harriet Klarfeldt, who I'll be quizzing about a couple of the most widely held stocks among our income majors. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Graham. And also, a little later on, a rare treat for listeners. We will be dialing in our expert stock picker, Simon Thompson, to discuss his bargain shares portfolio and how it's performing so far in 2019. But first of all, on to the feature. We're not going to we're not going to hang around talking about news this week. We're going to go straight into income investing. In your introduction, Alex, you point out that the history of dividend payments goes back more than four centuries to the Dutch East India Company. And income investors should be having a field day right now, looking at the results of our income major screen, with all the all the companies offering a yield of 5.5% or more. It looks like this year, according to research from AJ Bell, FTSE 100 companies are likely to pay out a record 91.2 billion in dividends, with this figure set to rise to 93.5 billion in 2020. In fact, in his column this week, Mr. Bearbull argues that the average yield on the FTSE 100, which is currently 4.3%, is ludicrous in historical terms. Alex, what do you make of that? I think ludicrous, but not necessarily a surprise. Mm hmm. The post-financial crisis, investors sought safety in fixed income, uh, and obviously that sent yields uh, down, uh, interest rates are low, and, well, equities are suddenly have been seen as much of a, a, safe, a safe haven, especially given the uh, length of the bull run that we've experienced. Um, and now we're seeing with concern in, over the stock market beginning to rise, uh, perhaps companies are beginning to reward shareholder faith. Um, via the means of dividends. Uh, but we look, I mean, are we looking at a high watermark in terms of UK dividends here? Um, I, I think it's, this is sustainable. If you look at the aggregate dividend cover um, across FTSE, it's actually been rising steadily since 2015. It was, it was pretty low. It was close to one, mm. a multiple of one. Still not the, the levels we saw prior to that point where I was seeing multiples of over two, but steadily edging upwards. Um, I, I guess, you know, a theme that I wanted to touch upon uh, in my introduction to this feature is is the sustainability of dividends and the environment for dividends and uh, a, perhaps a perceived rise in hostility towards dividends. Um, we know we've got the likes of National Grid and uh, BT um, in our list. We know that uh, a Labour government would seek to nationalise former great utilities um, and dividends are viewed dimly and are perhaps being used as part of an argument in favour of taking these these uh, companies back into public ownership. Um, what, what's the argument there, though? I mean, are, are, are people saying that there's better places to invest this money? Perhaps, yes. I mean, you know, we, if we, want, we look at the point of things like uh, price controls, uh, it's viewed dimly that these companies are paying out and almost destroying value as opposed to creating value and protecting the interests of the consumer as opposed to the shareholder. Um, share, the word shareholder is increasingly viewed as a, almost like a dirty word um, in some circles and areas of the left. And so from, from that point of view, I think yeah, the dividend may well be under threat from a political point of view. But from a financial point of view, as we said, the things like the dividend cover um, and market volatility, uh, long live the dividend. 
Mm, indeed. Um, in terms of dividend cover, we've uh, we talked, you know, we talked in the past uh, that cover should be at least one and a half times and, mm. and, and, and above that. But some of these companies are just tracking a little bit below that. Um, but they, they are, are these dividends, are all these dividends likely to be paid out? Are they sustainable? Well, we will come to Vodafone uh, with Harriet shortly, and uh, mm. uh, Vodafone slashing the dividend about forty percent. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and some opposition from shareholders, and that so that could almost be a bit of an acid test as to what happens when companies make promises about dividends then are, are yeah, unable to keep them. Um, BT uh, are another one who have said they seek to they are looking to maintain greater dividend and. You know, we may come to see the consequences effectively teasing your shareholders and then having to pull back or maintaining uh, those pledges at a cost to other parts of the business. Um, so then we come back to hostility towards dividends. If people are seeing, well, actually, this is the priority of a company, as opposed to actually growing the business, protecting it. Um, pensions uh, mm. are another point uh, to make um, in this point of view. I think yeah, the argument of dividends versus uh, deficit contributions is one that is uh, grown in importance and grown importance certainly in the pension sphere. Uh, the pensions regulator is looking to crack down on companies that are paying dividends uh, while their schemes are in deficit. And you say in your in your introduction here that seven out of the 10 companies, seven of them mm. are, are running chunky Well, they're running deficits. deficits. I mean, there's a couple. So BT, for example, in 2016 had the second joint worst uh, uh, deficit in the world. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily immoral to have a deficit. Deficits happen, and they take time to recover. And companies have to agree recovery plans and provide contributions and and a way out of deficit. And dividends are a way of creating shareholder value, and, and ultimately, it can be in the interest of a scheme. Um, well, it is definitely in the interest of a scheme for the company to be doing well as well. I think what people don't want to see is a deficit widening and widening. Um, and becoming more and more of a problem, especially in the context of things like M&A, where the pension scheme, the trustee, can become almost a kingmaker, um, if you like. I actually interviewed, we didn't get to feature in the end, but interviewed the industrials company 600 Group, um, who carried out a risk transfer of, uh, they got rid of all their liabilities, essentially. And they had quite an old covenant agreement between the company and their scheme, where effectively they could not pay out a dividend while the scheme was in deficit. That is very rare. But it does illustrate the importance of deficit in the context of schemes. And so, yeah, this you know this struggle between rewarding your shareholders, maintaining the business, investing in the business, and protecting the pensioners um, is one that will continue, is one that will increase in the public eye, particularly now, you know, more and more of us are on fairly meagre defined contribution schemes and not on the generous DB payouts of well, maybe what's one columnist will ring in later. I don't know. <laughs> we'll like speculate. Um, but yeah, it's it's an important thing to consider. Yes, definitely. And that, that sort of um, uh, balance between investments in, in the business, maintaining uh, a dividend and funding mm. a, a pension uh, deficit is something that uh, I'm sure Harriet's going to talk to um, when we come on to BT. And, and, and Yeah, in, uh, it's, in, I don't think it's a case of either or. Yeah. You can have it all. Okay, Thank you, Alex. Now, turning to the companies that you've written about, Harriet, mm-hmm. both in telecom sector, BT and Vodafone, these two companies offer forward dividend yields, according to our table, of 7.7% and 6.2% respectively. Um, they're, they're really chunky dividends. Are they sustainable? 
I think that's kind of the key question. Um, and we know we know that Vodafone did cut its dividend in May of this mm. year. So that yield is actually lower than it had been. Um, maybe to some people's minds, that means that it is far more sustainable than it had been. Yep. Um, but it's something we kind of look at in more detail within the income major feature. Um, obviously, as Alex said, there is this ongoing struggle for lots of companies, not just telecoms companies, between maintaining a good dividend payout to investors if there's a pension deficit, servicing the deficit, but also continuing to invest. And for telecoms companies, investment is very important. Mm. It's something we've seen um, particularly, well, with both BT and and Vodafone recently in terms of fibre for BT, but also um, 5G for both of them. Yeah. Um, let's look look in detail at BT, which has previously been described as a, a pension scheme with a, a telecoms company attached to it. Um, it, it. In terms of its deficit, how much money is it having to contribute on an annual basis now? So last financial year, um, BT said that it contributed £2 billion to its pension deficit. Um, and in turn, net debt rose by, I think, um, £1.4 billion to around £11 billion. So obviously that's having a, a big effect um, on the company but it's still managing to pay out billions in its dividend. Exactly. Um, so BT said um, in May this year that um, it, it it maintained its dividend of 15.4p and it said it's still expected to do the same for the current year, um, so FY 2020. Obviously, there are questions now about whether it can maintain it, and I'm sure those questions have been somewhat exacerbated by Vodafone cutting its dividend, given they are both telecoms companies. There are lots of other sort of polls on BT's cash flows. Mm. So you've talked about the pension deficit. And actually, we when we opted to make BT a sort of contrarian tip of the year at the beginning of this year, we did note that hefty pension deficit. And we sort of made the point that although there were um, issues, if you like, like the pension deficit, towards the end of, end of last year, it looked like there might be a sort of general co- recovery in sight for BT partly because incoming chief executive Philip Jansen, who joined in February and had previously co-led the payments giant WorldPay, would face pressure to address the company's cash flows and dividend, partly because of that pension deficit. I mean, we've talked about the pension, but there's there's also investment, which I've mentioned. And um, while BT, as I've said, has pledged to maintain that dividend this year, it also said that it would continue to consider factors, including underlying medium-term earnings expectations and levels of business reinvestment, including the potential for accelerated fibre to the premises or FTTP investment. And it already announced within its results that it accelerated its targets. So we know that it's targeting far more FTTP um, goals by sort of the mid-2020s. Yeah. Um, and generally in the past few months, we've, we've sort of seen mounting pressure for BT to increase spending with rising competition and fibre. I mean, this is, a, this is a sector you can't stand still in. You have no, to continue to invest. No, you have to keep investing. And it's huge sums. It, you know, as the world changes, as technology advances, you know, connectivity is kind of central to what everyone wants now. And, mm. and, and I've mentioned 5G. Um, you know, there, beyond that, there's sort of demand on fibre. And you, when you've got um, competitors stepping in and, and sort of bearing in on BT, it does need to continue investing sort of faster. And so we may see... We don't know yet, but we may see um, even more accelerated ambitions for FTTP. It's difficult to say. But for those reasons, um, some analysts have reduced their free cash flow forecasts and reply. And that's not really what we wanted to see um, where we were at the beginning of this year. Um, You know, the balance sheet's already stretched. Um, I mean, Mr. Johnson's trying to cut costs. He's taken 875 million out in the last financial year. Yes. Um, It's a huge, sprawling business. There's more that can be cut, but there's a limit to that. 
Well, that there could be a limit, yes. And so the cost-cutting strategy, in fairness, does look like it's going well. As you said, he um, there were significant cost savings last year. I think the question will be, you know, potentially where can they cut next? Mm. Will it be the dividend that goes on the line? Sure, I think it's Deutsche Bank who says expect the necessary increase in capital expenditure to lead to a dividend cut of one third. Mm. Um, and that at current share price levels, that would take the yield to the lower end of five percent. So it would it wouldn't even feature in our income agents. It wouldn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Given that we lifted it from five to five point five this year, Although, without that yield, without that yield, I mean, what really is the investment case for BT now? Given the now of expense, now of investment need to make. I know they've been doing some interesting stuff in America. Um, mm. start investment, but that's still not really a core part of the business. Let's face it, even if the dividend were cut, say mm. by the amount that Deutsche Bank has suggested, um, it would still be a decent dividend. Mm. But I, I think there's an argument for companies like BT that a dividend cut could ultimately be quite a good thing for it. It could be a smart move. You know, the balance sheet will be less stretched, there'll be more room for investment. BT's e mobile business um, launched the first, the UK's first 5G service um, at the end of May this year. Mm. So, you know, it is getting ahead in that respect. Um, so, yes, it would be very disappointing for income investors, but there is an argument that it would make for a more sustainable business in the longer sure. term. And it would still be a decent yield. And it would still, still be a decent yield. Not high enough, potentially, for so our So I guess BT's investors are, by and large, income investors, aren't they? There aren't many. <laughs> yeah, I think one would assume so. Yeah. Really, from our perspective, we just didn't don't really see a buying opportunity anymore, hmm. given that increased pressure on spending, on investment. Um, but we do still think the shares could be interesting and, and potentially positive to hold on to um, from a sort of, yeah, from a hold standpoint as opposed to a buy. Okay. The last dividend cut there was in 2009, so it's been yes. a, a long time. Um so we think it may still be worth holding for income investors, but yes. you're, you're just a little bit more sceptical around yes. the, the sort of the longer term outlook into the 2020s. Yeah. Um, just flipping to Vodafone, now it cut its dividend for the first time ever this year. It is. In May. Um, but and it still makes our list. It, it does, um, because its yield was ridiculously high, mm. sort of alarm bell ringing high um, before it made the cut. And at 6.2%, um, it is just a bit lower than it was. Could it cut again? I mean, I don't think we can rule that out. Um, but for the time being, it plans to maintain a progressive dividend policy from what it calls a rebased standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think beyond cutting the dividend, it is also doing things like looking at its portfolio. So most recently, it sold its New Zealand business just before it announced the results. So there are other um, methods it's sort of implementing in order to um, streamline and generate cash. And as part of that, it needs to spend money on fifth generation or 5G mobile spectrum auctions. So after the results, we learned more recently, I think in June, that Vodafone had spent 1.88 billion euros at the German on the German spectrum auction, which is a, obviously a lot of money. And I think the chief executive made the point at the time that it was important to find a balance between spending money on spectrum and also enabling a sort of inclusive mobile environment. But, you know, Spectrum is an example of something it'll need to continue investing in, and that will be a drag on cash flows. Yep. Um, and as you said, this is an area where it, it, doesn't start, it doesn't stop, you know, investment needs to continue. It's just, um, it's just completing the acquisition of uh, all being Liberty, well, Liberty all Global. Being well, yes. So Vodafone announced its acquisition of certain of Liberty Global's cable assets um, a while ago, but it is hoping and expecting for that deal to go through this month. Okay. So Vodafone's share price is down by just over a tenth year to date, but it's actually a tiny bit higher. The shares are actually a tiny bit higher than they were on the day that they cut the dividend. Okay. So 
you know, again, I think this is an, exa- an example of a company that could ultimately stand to benefit from having cut its dividend, although clearly very disappointing for income investors at the time. A cleaner balance sheet, potentially, although, of course, there is still the huge debt and more room for investment. I think it talked about rebuilding its financial headroom at the time of the results. I think that's a fair point, mm. although disappointing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I, I should add, um, we obviously took our, we took Vodafone off our speculative buy tip at the time of the results. Again, you know, we, we've kept it on a hold. We're quite happy to watch how the next part of the story plays out from the sidelines. So we sort of prefer a neutral position on it. There has been some news in the last day or so, and I think you touched on this um, a little earlier in the podcast. Um, so there were some reports yesterday that some large institutional investors are planning to oppose Vodafone's remuneration report at the AGM later this month. Yep. And apparently the proxy advisor ISS is recommending that investors vote against the pay. Um, but it's also been reported that senior executives are saying that they'll take cuts to their payouts as a sort of means of addressing those concerns. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens at the AGM um, at the end of July. And this is this, that's just a sign basically that investors are a little bit yes. grumpy about this dividend cut already. And I think so. They could be looking at other, other um, ways to attack the board. Maybe. I think so. And it may be that the board gives more insight into what their, what the, what their view is mm. at the moment on the dividend. As I said, they said at the time of the results, they plan from here to maintain a progressive policy. Um, maybe they'll shed a bit more light on that at the AGM. I mean, I guess this is this is an issue for the the income majors. You you make a world for your own back almost once you, you become a dividend stock. Then cutting it is mm. is um, it's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and can be very very painful. Um, okay, I think we'll leave it there with the income majors. There's another eight companies to read about in this week's magazine. Really interesting to look at the themes running through it and the way that the writers have analysed rationally whether these payouts are sustainable. Well, nine if you include the Dutch East India Company, Graham, obviously. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Now we're in for a rare treat. We're going to dial in our man in Kent, Simon Thompson. Hello, Simon. Hello, Graham. Hi. Uh, It's been a long time, Simon, but you have been as busy as ever uh, publishing another raft of updates this week. I wanted to ask you specifically um, about a couple of companies which are in your bargain shares portfolio for this year. Um, but first of all, how is the bargain shares portfolio performing? Um, it's doing incredibly well, Graham. Um, I published an updated table on the website um, a few days ago, and it's up about 17.5% since the uh, 1st of February. Uh, to put that into perspective, the AIM index, the AIM all share index is up 1%. Right. Uh, the FTSE all share index is up 10%. So it's streets ahead in terms of performance. And um, this week I've updated um, two of the companies in that portfolio, Augmentum Fintech mm. and Litigation Capital Management in the magazine, which comes out Friday. Um, I've also updated TMT Investments, which is an online article which goes out on Thursday. So shortly, um, well, actually now. Um, <laughs> um, um, but but the, the the most most interesting for me um, announcement was probably um, Augmentum Fintech, which raised almost twenty five million pounds net proceeds in the share placing yep. um, at a premium to net asset value. Um, to give you some perspective, at a this premium. is a, okay. at a premium. This is a leading venture capital investment group. It was the first. London Stock Exchange listed fintech fund when it raised £94 million at a pound a share um, in March 2018. Why has it been able to raise money at a premium? Well, to give you some idea, in the first 12 months, the internal rate of return on the seed portfolio was 28%. 
that's quite impressive. Where is, but, where, where is, what sort of investments is it? I know you said fintech. Fintech's a pretty wide field. What are its best investments? Best investments are two large ones. Zopa, uh, the peer-to-peer platform that's yeah. going to have a banking license. Well, it already has a banking license, but it'll be launching a fully-fledged bank later this year. Um, Zopa's arranged over £3.7 billion worth of loans on its platform since it was launched in 2015. Um, the stake in that is worth £22 million. So, um, Augmentum's got a 6.2% stake. So, um, Total equity value of Zopper is three hundred fifty-four million pounds. Zopper is profitable, by the way. Um, Two thousand seventeen financial year. The results were actually announced early July last year. Um, it posted a one point five million pounds net profit. Um, I go through Company House, by the way, for all the um, companies that Augmentum actually holds stakes in to actually see what the financial performance is, because okay. um, obviously it's not listed on the stock market. Zopper. Um, I'm awaiting results for the 2018 financial year for Zopper, but I'm sure that's going to be rather good, which is one reason why um, Augmentum actually increased the value of the stake in Zopper by 18% in the last 12 months. Um, the other big interesting one is Interactive Investor. Augmentum have got a 3.7% stake. They trebled the value valuation of that stake from 3 million to 10 million in the last 12 months. Um, I think that is fundamentally undervalued. Um, the 3.7% stake implies a valuation of £272 million for Interactive Investor. To put it into perspective, uh, following the acquisition of Alliance Trust Savings to create one of the biggest retail platforms in the UK, Interactive Investor now has £35 billion worth of assets under management. So it's got 300,000 clients. Is profitable again in the 2017 financial year. It posted an operating profit of 10.8 million pounds. To put it into perspective, AJ Bell, which listed its um, shares uh, quite recently, um, it's got 48 billion pounds of assets under management. That is a 1.6 billion pounds market cap company. It's so quite, it's quite a contrast. It's a huge contrast. And the end game for Interactive Investor, which is majority owned by JC Flowers, the US private equity venture capital group, which has itself 55 investee companies and $15 billion worth of investments. The end game for Interactive Investor is to actually IPO in the UK market. I reckon if that was to happen, then, well, it wouldn't have a valuation, read-through valuation of £272 million, which is the read-through valuation in Augmentum's accounts for its own stake. I reckon it IPO with a valuation of around about £750 million. And Augmentum's likely to hold on to this investment? Oh, undoubtedly, it'll hold on until the IPO. But um, if you look at how JC Flowers operates, then um, I can see some action happening um, in terms of that company um, within the next 12 months or so, realistically. And in the meantime, you're just going to see an increase in the valuation that Augmentum attributes to that stake in that um, that company. Um, It's got another 13 investments as well. Um, In total, its investment portfolio, including recent investments made in the last four weeks, um, is worth about 85 to 86 million pounds. It's got another 41 million pounds worth of cash, including the 25 million pounds raised this week. Um, I'm quite happy actually paying. The market price of 112, which is pretty close to net asset value of 109.6 pence a share last reported NAV, simply because I can see masses of upside 
to the valuations of not just Opera and Interactive Investor, but other companies in the portfolio which it's been investing in. So I'm actually very positive on it. I guess there'll always be something of a lag in in the company's own um, NAV calculation because these are private companies, and there's some often there's upside to be to to still come through in the portfolio. Absolutely. These are conservative valuations, which mm. is why Interactive Investor, they, they raised the valuation from £3 million pounds March 2018 at the time of the IPO to £10 million. Pounds. Yeah. And what, what I'm saying is that even at £10 million, pounds, that only implies a read-through valuation for the whole of Interactive Investor of £270 million. Pounds. And that's just far too low compared with the listed comparables of AJ Bell or Hargreaves Lansdowne. You know, Hargreaves Lansdowne, okay, it's the biggest platform in the UK. It's got £86 billion of assets under management, hugely profitable. But Hargreaves Lansdowne has got a £9.5 billion market cap. Well, Interactive Investor's got £35 billion assets under management. It's got a read-through valuation of £270 million. I'll tell you which one I prefer to actually hold. <laughs> Indeed. So it looks like um, a huge potential upside in what they already have in their portfolio. They've now got still got a chunk of money to deploy. Um, so it seems like a good time to be investing in fintech. It does. It's, it's got a pipeline, um, according to the investment manager, Tim Levine, who's a very shrewd guy. It's got a pipeline of about £450 million worth of investment. So there's no shortage to actually deploy the £42 million cash in the balance sheet. And as I said, you know, its, it's track record is rather good. I mean, prior to the IPO, um, Augmentum was a fund that was being run in effect for the Rothschild family, Ritz Capital Partners, which is a three billion market cap investment trust listed on the London stock market. And Ritz actually retained a stake in Augmentum when it actually floated um, in March 2018. And that tells you everything because they're very shrewd guys too. Yeah, indeed. It looks really, really interesting. This Obviously, it's gone up a little bit since, since the portfolio uh, bargain shares portfolio came out in, in February. Um, but it sounds like you're in this for the long haul. Oh, absolutely. Look, it's, it's done 10% return in five months. I'd be happy if it does another 10% in the next six, seven months. And as and when the likes of Interactive Investor and Zopper and other companies, investors, companies in the portfolio IPO, you will see hefty returns being made. And this could be one that could run and run for for years. I, I know also this week you were writing about Oakley, which which is in your 2016 bargain shares portfolio, still delivering. Absolutely. I mean, that's total return on that holding of 70% now, including dividends, which compares very favorably with the 48% return on the um, FTSE All Share Index and the 41% return on the uh, FTSE AIM All Share Index. So it's actually outperforming the benchmarks. Um, I explained in the article on Oakley Capital that the NAV at the end of June, or actually the spot NAV, significantly higher than the year-end one um, for 2018 for two reasons. One, it's done a part realisation on one of its education investments, but secondly, it owns a stake in time out, which accounted for 7% of Oakley's NAV of 281 pence a share at the end of 2018. Well, time out share price is up 90% this year. So mark that holding to market value. Time out's listed on the AIM market, by the way. Mark that holding to market value. Factor in the gains made in the educational business. And I reckon the spot NAV for Oakley is around about 320 pence a share. 
the market price is 235 pence. So it's trading at 85 pence discount. Well, that's more than 25% discount to NAV, despite the fact that Oakley has got a fantastic track record, is clearly delivering and is realising capital from its investee companies at massive premiums to the carrying value in the accounts. Yeah, which shows the value of this long-term uh, investment, I guess. Um, just flip, flipping to, uh, well, heading down under, in fact, um, I, I just wanted to briefly talk, talk to you about a, a completely different type of investment company, um, litigation capital management, which I, I guess does what it says on the tin, does it? When I included this one in my 2019 bargain share portfolio, I was actually looking for the next Burford Capital. Um, readers that have been following my columns will have noted back in June 2015, I spotted Burford when it was named traded company, market capitalization of £200 million, trading on about 10 times um, earnings, decent dividend yield, close to book value. And I did a heck of a lot of research into that company before I actually wrote a quite detailed article saying, well, actually buy it because it's being undervalued significantly. Um, over the course of the next three years, the share price increased by 1,300%. It, it went from a £200 million market capitalization company to a £3 billion one, at which point I actually dropped coverage and you know passed it over to the uh, larger company's team. Yeah. But but my the basis for including litigation capital management was to try and actually find the next Burford Capital, and I still think that this could be it. Um, since it actually IPO'd, which was the tail end of 2018, and it was backed by some very smart fund managers, by the way, Might and Group, River Mercantile, Standard Life Investments controlled 27% of the equity in the company, and. Um, but since it's actually IPO'd then, it's been announcing a stream of completions of legal cases with some really hefty gains. Um, for instance, in the last few weeks, um, it's announced the closure of an open class action in the Federal Court of Australia, which it funded on behalf of a group that suffered financial loss following a investment in an allegedly, I say allegedly, fraudulent scheme, but it clearly was. Um, anyway, that, that uh, case has uh, settled. And for its part, litigation capital, who actually provided the funding on it, will receive up to three million Australian dollars as a profit. Well, that's about 1.7 million pounds. It was the fifth case settlement in the financial year. Um, a few weeks prior to that, um, there was a massive one after... Uh, litigation capital settled an open class action it funded on behalf form of shareholders in what I believe was Discovery Metals against KPMG, the accountancy firm. Well, the Supreme Court of New South Wales made an announcement in early June um, making the settlement final and binding. And according to the chief executive of litigation capital, Patrick Maloney, the company will make word upwards, and this is a profit, by the way, well, a cash profit, but cash profit for um, litigation capital is more or less the same as operating profit. It will make a cash profit of upwards of 10 million Australian dollars. That's about five and a half million pounds sterling at current exchange rates. And to put that into perspective, the return on the invested capital on this case is likely to be in excess of 200%. In less than two years as well. So that highlights the type of returns this company is actually making. And it's got this pipeline of, of uh, litigation cases um, stacking up. How many, what is this, what sort of success rate 
does it need to to meet the expectations that uh, that the analysts now have for this company um not huge to be honest because if you if you go back through all the cases it wins about over 80 percent of the cases it actually backs um it's generated an average return on invested capital of 117 percent since 2012 the internal rate of return which is basically the annual rate it actually makes per year on these invested cases is north of 80 percent because they're actually quite short that they're less than well they're around about 27 months or less from beginning to end to actually settlement. Um, analysts are basically factoring in for the financial year to June 2020 that taking into account the pipeline, and it's got 29 litigation projects under management, of which 23 are unconditionally funded. Nine of those are class actions, by the way, mm. um, which are actually the profitable ones, most profitable ones. And six of the 29 cases are conditionally signed. But anyway, just taking those projects alone and a small selection of them, which are due to actually come to settlement in the financial year to June 2020, analysts at Arden Partners, it's Michael White's analyst there, expect the pre-tax profits for litigation capital to rise from around about nine and a half million to almost 15 million Australian dollars. Um, that delivers about earnings per share of five and a half pence. The stock price is about 99 pence at the moment. My point is that litigation capital has a very conservative um, accounting practice. It actually values the cases at cash in the balance sheet. It doesn't actually raise the valuation. So although the stock is actually trading on about 2.6 times book value, the peer group average, including Burford, is around about 4.2 times. So it's already trading at discounts. But because these cases are actually valued so conservatively, it actually fails to capture the true underlying value um, when basically the company actually reached settlement and then it delivers these huge profits. So my my thesis is that litigation capital should be trading roughly on a 15% discount to its peer group average to take into account its very conservative valuation. And that would actually raise the stock price, my target price, to about £1.40 a share compared with the pound at the moment. I put readers in at 77 pence, so the stock's already done about 30%. Mm. So it's one of the better performers in this year's portfolio. But I can still see massive upside to the share price as these cases come through the legal system reach settlement and as i said it's got some very smart lawyers um actually behind behind it one of the reasons i actually backed this company was that a guy um called nick rolls davis is the executive vice chairman he joined litigation capital in 2018 it was a strategic hire mr rolls davis was the director of burford capital until 2016 where he basically led the non-us operations as the managing director he's not the only smart guy on board they recruited um, two very savvy lawyers matthew denny and toby butcher they were partners at and, and your law, that's one of the largest and most respected litigation firms, litigation only firms in, in the UK uh, system. One other point I'd actually flag that I got out of an analyst this week is that back in March this year, um, litigation capital entered into a funding cooperation agreement with a London-based international law firm. Yep. I've discovered that's Clyde & Co., well, Clyde & Co. operates across six continents through a network of 50 offices. It's got over 400 partners. It's one of the most active firms in the litigation space globally, and it represents clients across the aviation, energy, natural resource sectors. And as, as you 
will have heard from what I've been saying, then the natural resource sector is one that's uh, litigation capital targets, mm-hmm. um, as well as infrastructure, trade and commodities. Um, the point about that agreement is that it gives a deal flow for litigation capital to actually boost its pipeline. Well, the pipeline already is 59 projects with potential investment in excess of £211 million across a mix of litigation finance, um, including commercial international arbitration, insolvency, class actions and corporate portfolio work. Point is that with this agreement with Clyde & Co, then you'd expect that pipeline to actually grow even quicker. But more importantly, the entry level for litigation capital will be more um, benign, so um, at a lower cost, uh, given this agreement, um, which is basically going to boost its returns in the future. I mean, there's so many things that are positive about this company that even though the stock price is up 30%, I still don't believe that a pound a share is the end game for litigation capital. My, my target's price is 40% higher just based on the work it's actually doing at the moment. Forget about these 59 projects in the pipeline and forget about the agreement with Clyde & Co. Yeah. It's simply based, if it was actually to settle the 29 cases, it's actually funding delivers the type of returns in excess of 100% in return on invested capital, then a stock price of 140 would actually back up the share price mm. um, or the value in this company. Um so basically, this could be, you know, I, I don't say it lightly, but this could be the next Burford Capital. And do you think do you think that the market just doesn't quite understand this business yet? Um, it's, it's understanding it more. The, the reason why Burford did so well is that um, there was a lack of peers listed um, in the UK market. Yeah. Um, Investors like it because it offers litigation finance, offers diversification to portfolios. Mm. Um, the beta of these companies is close to zero. Um, so they're not really playing the equity markets. They're, they're a play in the ability of the lawyers of these companies to actually generate the returns. And what I would say is that corporate finance work, corporate portfolio work for litigation funding is a growth market in Europe. And it's hasn't even touched the tip of the iceberg yet. Mm. So I can see in the future these, you know, these these projects, litigation capital and other players in the market are actually uh, funding, having an increasing amount of corporate portfolio work, and that's hugely profitable. Yeah. Fascinating um, business. It's uh, it certainly looks like huge potential um at that and and augmentum and we can see the effect that's having on the the, the overall bargain shares portfolio itself. It's 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 in a good place, the portfolio at the moment, but I'd be very disappointed if it doesn't kick on mm. over the next six, seven months, not just because of augmentum and uh, litigation capital, but the other eight constituents I selected, that there's upside to them. Even uh, Futura Medical, which is a top performer, um, if that company actually delivers at the end of the year, the data that commercial partners want on the um, phase three study trial it's actually doing, then th- there could be masses of upside to that company. Good stuff. Well, we look forward to the final reckoning. Thank you very much, Simon. It's been really good to catch up with you. No, um, great to talk. We'll speak again soon. 
Will do. Cheers. Okay, elsewhere uh, in the magazine this week, we have a feature on a new era for pharmaceuticals written by Megan Boxhall, late of this parish. Um, Algie Hall's stock screen this week is using Jim Slater's Zulu principles for small caps. Uh, John Rosier's Private Investor's Diary is also in this week. And Phil Oakley has uh, his latest educational must-read on why understanding operational gearing is key to successful investing. It's another jam-packed issue uh, available in all good news agents and on the web at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. Thank you to my guests today and thank you for listening.